You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We've done it, Oral. We've reached episode 20 of Off Air with Joe and Oral. And we've got Dino Ebel with us this week, the Dodger third base coach who is, uh, has become a fan favorite, I think, when he's been mic'd up on some of our broadcasts. Just a wonderful personality and character, and he shed some light on some really unique angles of coaching third and a long life in the big leagues. And the skipper, Dave Roberts, he digs into the controversial grand slam of Fernando Tatis swinging on a 3-0 pitch in a game that was kind of out of reach. Yeah, just his thoughts in general on baseball's unwritten rules and how his thoughts on those are evolving. We've got all that and more coming up here on Episode 20. Today's podcast is brought to you by Postmates, Bank of America, Security Benefit, and UCLA Health. From Dodger Dogs to Garlic Fries, you can get a taste of Dodger Stadium experience delivered on demand right to your home through Dodger's Home Plates, exclusively available through the Postmates app. You can still enjoy your favorite Dodger Stadium dishes while you cheer on the team from home. As a special offer to our listeners, be sure to use the promo code OFFAIR to check out and get a free Dodger Dog with your order. A setback. Well, that's just a comeback you haven't met yet. While this season may look different, let's rally to support our team and a great cause as the official Bank of Major League Baseball and the Dodgers. Bank of America is launching a Let's Rally campaign and donating $10,000 to Boys and Girls Clubs of America for each late-inning comeback to win the game, up to a million dollars. The Dodgers have had a bunch of comebacks already this year. As part of this effort to make a difference in local communities, Bank of America has partnered with Dodgers ace Walker Bueller and MLB players from each team to create a unique collection of 30 T-shirts. For each T-shirt purchase, Bank of America is going to donate $7 to the Boys and Girls Clubs of America, up to $200,000. At a time when our country faces its own comeback, Bank of America is excited to use its partnership with Major League Baseball and Boys and Girls Clubs of America to give fans something positive to rally around. Learn more at MLB.com slash Bank of America Let's Rally. Joe, every winning season is built on a strong team, a team committed to executing a solid game plan. At Security Benefit, we want to help you and your advisor build your retirement game plan to help you stay committed during these uncertain times so that when it's time to execute, you know that you've got a solid team behind you. When it comes to retirement, losing is not an option. Talk to your financial advisor to see how you can plan for retirement. Security Benefit is a proud sponsor of the Los Angeles Dodgers. Dodger fans, UCLA Health has some great news. They've once again earned the number one position in both California and L.A. while jumping up two spots to secure the number four national ranking in the annual assessment of hospitals by U.S. News & World Report. The national honor roll is a distinction reserved for only 20 hospitals among 4,500 evaluated, and UCLA Health has appeared on the list for 31 straight years. It's a remarkable achievement, and it's only possible because of their commitment to the patients they serve. What does offering the best care mean for you? Best care means pride. Best care means trust. Best care means that even amid a pandemic, you can wake up each day with the confidence that the top team in California has your back. Thank you for being a part of the UCLA Health family and allowing them to take care of you. Go to uclahealth.org to learn more about UCLA Health's commitment to your community. Episode 20 of Off Air, it's the third base coach of the Dodgers, Dino Ebel, and of course Dave Roberts. Hit it, Frankie. 
So, Dino, coming off a 2-1 win on Tuesday night where you got to send in both runs, big waves, sending Barnes in to score, do you get adrenaline rushes on plays like that as a third-base coach? Absolutely, and the credit really goes to uh, Barnesy because we went back last night on the way here to Seattle and looked at how he cut the base at third base, his angle, and the, the good secondary jump, and the ball was hit well. It wasn't like it was a roller through, you know, with JT hitting the first one and then uh, Seeger hitting that last one. Barnsey came around third base, and I'm telling you, he made a cut that just was incredibly inside the bag and was moving pretty good, and I came down the line. They had to throw us out because it was two outs, and uh, with the jump that uh, Barnsey got, we scored easily. With two outs and knowing the runner at second base, do you almost have like an automatic sign in your head? It's got to be like a bullet somewhere where you're going to hold somebody up with two outs. Absolutely. And, you know, you never want to get anybody hurt or, you know, they always say, well, two outs, send them. No, I, you know, I don't believe in that because I always look at, you know, again, the National League uh, with a pitcher, as you know, Earl, uh, if you have a pitcher behind you, maybe you might send them or if that guy can hit like you could, you might take a chance on just, uh, you know, saying, you know what, let Oral hit with two, two outs runner on third base. But uh, yeah, you know, if it's a bullet right at somebody moving forward, you don't, they don't have to go to the left or right. You know, I'm just not going to send somebody to get them thrown out. How would you describe the way your if you could like draw a picture of your brain during a game? Because that's a lot of stuff going on. How would you describe what your brain looks like as you're processing all this? Man, it's uh, probably very small. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, you know, with all the the years I've been doing it, it's just like a it's a it's a frame of a baseball. You know, just. Uh, picturing it before it happens, just uh, like anything else, you know, like when you play the game and if you're an infielder and the ball's hitting the gaps, where am I going? And, you know, all this stuff runs through my head. And I think managing in the minor leagues and coming up through the minor leagues and learning all the fundamentals of the game through the Dodge organization, um, it's just a, you know, I know who's on deck, who's in the hole, uh, what's the situation in the game, how many outs there are, what's the outfielder's arm, can they move left and right? And when that ball's hit, I think it's the speed of the ball. We were talking about this yesterday. It's the speed of the ball and the situation of the game. If it's a you know a bullet like we were just talking about, it's a different story. If it's uh, you know uh, to their left or right, a slow roller, all that stuff plays into my head. And when the ball's hit, I just react. And then I come down from that line to give myself some time to let the play develop, and then I make a decision. From your playing days as an infielder, you probably played in the outfield a little bit every once in a while, maybe an emergency, but do you feel like the speed of the game changes the same ways as a player as it does for a coach? Uh, yeah, it's fast. It's, uh, you know, just like yesterday, I'll bring up yesterday for an example, the pop-up that was shallow, D. Gordon coming in, our reports that he has an average arm. Um, you know, he's coming in. Uh, Corey Seager, who's at third base, I tell him to tag, but as shallow as he was, I mean, it happened so fast. I told him to tag, I come down the line, but because he was so shallow, I'm not going to risk a, a throw to the plate, um, getting Corey Seager tagged out or chance of an injury. But now he falls, he slips, the ball comes out slow out of his hand. And it looks like now, you know what, why didn't Dino send him? But in, in the moment, you know, I have to make that decision before he throws that ball and, you know, I held them, and that's the kind of the speed of the game that I go through during during the process. 
Are you assuming accuracy on the throw then when it goes shallow, or do you guys have reports like good arm but not accurate? Absolutely. And the closer you are to home plate, as everybody knows, the accuracy is going to be better. And and if an outfielder, an infielder is closer to that diamond and he's throwing to home, you know, chances are he's going to put the ball where he wants it. But the farther they go out, and that's one thing I do look at um, when there's a ball in the gap down the lines, how far that middle guy goes out and uh, who's the shortstop. Does he have a power arm? Is it an average arm? Uh, is his accuracy good? The farther he goes out, the accuracy is going to, you know, go, in my opinion, it's going to go uh, less where he's going to put on the money. So uh, that's what I'm looking at when the, when the play is happening. So before all this is happening, I, I put it in my head. And then when it happens, I react to it and watch the play happen, develop. You've been doing this a long time now. Do you have one or two most thrilling sends of your career? Oh, man. These are uh, – it's uh, – to, to look back, I think uh, coming up, uh, uh, you know, being in the big leagues, my first 13 years with the Angels, there was a send in playoffs. I think it was an extra innings in 09. Uh, Mike Sosha pinch runs uh, Gary Matthews at second base, two outs uh, in the a ALCS. And there was a, a, a Sean Figgins blue pit down the left field line. And I think it was uh, either Damian or Matsui. I can't recall. But, uh, you know, two outs and Matthews now sees the ball hit off the bat and he kind of stops. And I'm yelling, let's go, let's go. And then I send him, there's a, you know, a kind of a play at the plate and he's safe. But in a big game like that, extra innings, I mean, you remember that. Uh, but you know what? I always look at. You know, every send when I come down that line late in the game, eighth, ninth inning, and that run is either the tying run or the go-ahead run. It's all – it just that adrenaline goes through me. When I'm sending the guy, when the play's happening, I say this all the time, it's silent. It I don't hear mm -hmm. nothing. I'm watching the play develop, and then after, you know, the play is uh, we score – uh, then I then it's now it slows down for me. I hear the Dodger fans, the crowd, the roar, and then I get excited, get the chills. It all comes into play. So you probably, as much as anybody that is not a player, still experience those emotions of a player, right? I mean, the, obviously everybody involved experiences them, but with the adrenaline and the fact that you probably got to have a pretty decent short memory too. Absolutely. I think being a third base coach now that I've, you know, I've done it for a while and being a bench coach for Mike Sosha for four years, the, that's the closest that I think you can get of playing the game because you have to make decisions. There was a time earlier in my career, we were playing the Tigers and I asked Jim Leland, I said, who's the most important coach on your staff? Figuring that it's the pitching coach, the bench coach, you know, all the strategy that goes through the game. And he pointed right over to the third base uh, box and he said, you as you know, if you were my third base coach, you are the most important guy. And I'm like, why? He goes, because you can win and lose ball games. Mm -hmm. So that to me, you know, is the closest. Like you said, the adrenaline is moving. It's 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 you're you're the closest as playing the game. Wasn't it also Jim Leland, you know, that said he doesn't want a third base coach who never gets anybody thrown out because that doesn't mean he's taken enough chances. Well, I've heard that many times, and even you know, Joe Mafatano that the, that I absolutely love taught everything that i've you know that i've come up with in the dodger system um said that uh you know use it as spring training learn your players in spring training learn the guys who can run the base as well who can't who you can send who you can't 
Because if you don't get guys thrown out, then you're not being aggressive. Now, again, you're not just going to run into outs. He always tells us just don't run into outs. But, um, yeah, you have to be at times you're going to get – nobody's perfect. I don't think I've ever met a third-base coach who's never went a whole – season and was like a hundred for a hundred. It's not going to happen. So uh, I think you have to be aggressive at times. And if you, again, you, if the guy in the outfield or in a double cut situation puts it on the money, they get you. We're in the middle of the Seattle series as we're taping this. And uh, you've been over there at third base with the two Seeger brothers. What were some of those conversations like? It's pretty good. Uh, all the years I was with the Angels, I would always ask Kyle, like, hey, how's your brother doing with the Dodgers? And he would tell me. And now I'm asking Corey, how's your brother doing with Seattle? And I told uh, Kyle that yesterday and he got a kick out of that. But man, I tell you what, they're, they're such good people and you could talk baseball with them and they're relaxed, confident. They play the game. There's no fear in both of them. You could, you know, uh, it was nice the other night when they both were standing at third base. Corey's over there. And uh, Kyle says, hey, I'm taller than Dino. So it kind of, <laughs> it kind of a little giggle right there. And I'm like, really? You're going to bring that up now? And they were, all, they were all laughing. So it was pretty cool. Who are the best conversations of the third baseman across the league? Oh, man. Uh, it, you know, uh, it, usually everybody. Arenado's good. Uh, uh -huh. You know, um, back in uh, some of my days with the Angels, like Adrian Beltre, because he came up with the Dodgers and we would talk Dodger baseball and, you know, A-Rod and, you know, uh, you know, all the third basemen. I always talk to them, ask them how they're doing, try to pick their brain. Sometimes I've asked, you know, there's if there's a guy on the bench that might be uh, giving away some secrets here that might be like, uh, you know, not playing that day. I'm like, hey, what's going on with so and so? And he might they might say, well, he's got a little sore uh, leg. <laughs> string and then i go run in the dugout tell the manager so do a little <laughs> scouting on the side there yeah hey how about those third basemen dino when you got the man on third and it's a key run and you're going over there maybe to talk about squeeze or talk about tagging and stuff but the third baseman like matt williams in our generation used to come over and stand right in the middle of the conversation and you want to tell some things to your guy on third what do you do well i think if you if you've seen sometimes what i do i wait like the other night Kyle was standing on the bag and uh, um, I think it was yesterday and it was, uh, you know, a situation where Dave maybe wanted him to go on contact or let it, let it go through. And I waited until Corey came down the line after Kyle now has to get into position. Now, Adrian Beltre is the best that I've ever seen it. He would stand right on the bag and I would tell him, I'm like, really, you're going to stand right here. And he'd say, well, I can, I want to listen to what you guys are going to do. And then I would kind of mess with Adrian and say, well, this, this ball is going to be hit right at you and you're going to boot it. We're going to score a run. And he'd say, hey, wait a minute, wait, and get off the bag. So they don't want to hear that that part of the, the, you know, the defensive side. But, yeah, they give you trouble when uh, – now I just wait until the guy comes down the line and then I tell him what the manager wants. Your time with the Dodgers, Dino, goes back into the 1980s when you were a player in the minor league system. What was Dino Ebel the player like? Oh, man, it was, uh, you know, I always played the game hard. Uh, growing up as a kid, uh, I liked Pete Rose, you know, the way he played the game. You know, I uh, was a middle infielder coming out of a small town in Barstow. Went to college in Florida Southern, a Division II school. Signed with the Dodgers in 88. And then just I wanted to be that guy that played the game right, and played it the right way, played it hard. And, uh, you know, the dream was always get to the big leagues, but it didn't happen. But 
but I always said, I won't take this uniform off until they take it off, you know, take it from me. And, um, you know, that's the way I went about my, my business. I was high energy, um, you know, kept guys uh, alive, talk baseball, help younger guys as you know, the played six and a half years and I started to become more of a player coach type thing. And then I got into coaching. So that's how I would describe it. What's that moment like when you you said obviously the dream was to be a big league player, but when you begin to come to terms with the idea that that might not happen and you start to have those conversations about shifting into coaching, what is that like when you your brain tries to process that? Well, I think you have to, um, and I say this now to young guys who might be thinking about uh, getting into coaching, you have to be completely like, that's it. Because if you go into the side of coaching and you think you still can play, you're going to just, you won't give it your, your best, I feel, as giving uh, back to the players and teaching them because you're always going to look to say, man, I can still play this game. So um, when they came to me, uh, Charlie Blaney, the farm director of the Dodgers at that time, said, we want to make you a player coach. Now, that was kind of different because they they said if, uh, um, you know, if we need a guy who can go to double A or triple A, we're going to call you and Oral knows Raphael Bornegal and myself. We both were player coaches. I started in Bakersfield. He started in Lakeland uh, in Florida in the Florida State League. And that was the year in 91, I think it was, when Oral was going around in the minor leagues and going from A ball to double A AA to triple A, getting his rehabs in, starts, and going back to the big leagues. And it was weird because I was kind of following Oral. He came to Bakersfield and he went to San Antonio. I was in San Antonio. We went to triple A in Albuquerque. I went to triple A. And then, uh, so I think you have to, as a player coach, that was a little difficult because you still think you're playing. But the following year, I said, that's it. Once they made me a coach, that I knew the game was over for me as a player. Now you got to get back as a coach. One of the biggest transitions for me when I went from playing to front office to coaching was when you're a player, you're worrying about one career. When you're a coach, you're worrying about maybe 30 or 40 careers. Did you feel like you just stepped into a job? Yeah. <laughs> like playing, playing was fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. And you're right, Oral, because Chico Fernandez told me this. He said, now, you, you know, you, you got to forget about yourself and you got to help the other 24 players on the team. So, yeah, I've always felt like as an infield guy, third base coach, um, if, even in the outfield, I taught the outfield, like if the balls hit to left center field or right center field, and I was a middle guy. So if the left fielder, the balls hit to right center field and the left fielder after the inning came to me and said, Hey, where am I supposed to go there with runners on first and second? I felt I should know the answer because I'm getting into the coaching part of it. So you're helping everybody out on that, on that roster. And yeah, that, that is a good point because that did happen to me earlier in my career. Do you know why uh, those 13 years you spent with the Angels, that included the first eight years of Mike Trout's career? Besides being extraordinarily gifted and talented, obviously, what is it about him that you saw on an everyday basis that lets him be just kind of in his own stratosphere? Well, I think he just comes every day and he, and he plays the game the right way and he has fun. He doesn't, you know, look outside and think what people think of him he he goes about it he gets along with his teammates he's there for his teammates uh he listens if you have something for him I think as a coach you can't be intimidated with the greatest player of the game right now in in, in the world for me is you know Mike Trout of the way he goes about it and if something needs to be said or he does something wrong 
you have to build that relationship with the player, the communication, and he accepts it. He's like, I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to do anything that I'm not supposed to be doing. If you see something, let me know. He's learning the game every day. He helps his teammates out. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a process that when he walks into that clubhouse or, you know, when I was with the angels at noon, you know, he would start looking at video and preparing his day and the pitching, who's he going to face? He knew all the guys in the bullpen and, you know, as a, a leader of the club, you know, with Albert there and Tory Hunter was there and a bunch of veteran guys. He, you know, Tory Tory took him under his wing and, uh, you know, and Mike Trout is Mike Trout. He's the best player and uh, he goes about it the right way. And then Mookie Betts is somebody who's in the conversation always as the, you know, the fighting for number two. It seems like it's a battle for number two. Everybody kind of agrees Mike Trout is maybe the greatest player ever to play. Mookie's name comes up as the next guy often. You've been around him for several months now on an everyday basis. How does seeing him go about his business compared to what you saw with Trout? Same way. This guy, uh, he's elite. They're elite players that go, they, they have the same kind of mentality on how they prepare for the day. And I saw that with Albert when, uh, when Pujols came to the Angels and I heard all this stuff about his routines and the way he goes about his work. Now I'm with Mookie and, you know, he comes out every day. He's consistent. He's, uh, he's got a smile on his face. He's looking to get better on the bases. He takes ground balls with us every day at third base at shortstop. That's part of his routine to get his footwork, to get his hands moving and keeps his arm, you know, in shape. And uh, these are the things in, you know, the things that guys do that are superstars. And then what's happening now, the younger guys start to see this and they start to come out and they're working harder and they're developing their skills. And it's just a mindset that, uh, that Mookie and Trout and, you know, these elite players have that, it's uh they're you know in the clubhouse it's they follow the guys will jump on and say let's go the best player in the game is doing this and we're going to go out there and get our work in those are two superstars but you think about um the separators of the big leaguers you know it takes a certain amount of talent to play at the big league level or to make it to the big leagues what are the separators for you that separate those guys not necessarily make them superstars but maybe keeps a guy in the big leagues makes a big leaguer all of a sudden kind of a semi-star or starter or the separator from the star to the hall of famer yeah i think it's being consistent you know everybody can you know usually you have some tools that get you to the big leagues and then you got to maintain it you got to be consistent guys that go up and down up and down you know those are the kind of the you know, they get four, five, six years in the big leagues and they're good players. They may, might, might make an all-star team one year and then they just not consistent. But the good guys who separate that I've seen, they just stay consistent. They believe in the process. They stay with it. Um, and they're always looking to get better. And once they get a taste of the all-star game or once they get into the playoffs and live that moment they drive in a big run hit a big home run hit a strike out a strike out a guy key situation they they're hungry they want to get back to that moment into the playoffs and i think that for me what i've seen is i've seen some guys with a lot a lot of talent that just fade out after one or two or three years because they're not consistent they don't take care of their their bodies they you know after games they're running late out at night and that stuff will finally catch up to you in 162 games It'll, it'll get you. So the separator for me is the guys that stay consistent, take care of themselves, and they're, they're ready the, ne- the next day to play the game hard. What about the detail seekers, those guys that look for that extra edge in a game? 
Absolutely. You know, the, yeah, you're right. If they're not playing that day, they're on the bench, they're studying that pitcher. They're seeing how they throw to the hitters in front of, in front of them. Uh, they're looking just for the edge, like you said, and it's just, uh, they pay attention to detail. They they're looking to get better. They don't want to make mistakes. And when they make mistakes, they want to learn from it. And then they, they talk to their teammates about it. So that's to me is uh, it's huge in a major league uh, clubhouse. Did you get your run in today? Got it done. So let's talk about consistency. That's you. That's you on the treadmill, my man. How many miles a day at this point? I'm running about four. Now that uh, we can't use the hotel gyms and, you know, MLB has put a lockdown on that. Uh, they let us go out in the morning. So this morning I got up around 738, went out and, you know, ran around 40 minutes and around the city and got a cup of coffee and I'm ready to go. You, you got your oatmeal in you? Not yet. After this interview, I'm going down to Starbucks to get it. You got to be shaken, huh? You don't have your oatmeal in you yet. What are you going to do? You know, do? we did an episode. We did an episode on favorite cereals, you know, and I got hammered because I did like oatmeal and cream of wheat, and I did nice basic solid raisin bran cereals. I wish you would have been on that that episode to rescue me. Yeah, I would have backed you on that one. Would you though? You would say, oh, if somebody asked you what your top four cereals are, you would put oatmeal as that would come to mind as a top four cereal. Hundred percent. Really? Okay. <laughs> now in the Back in my early days, I would go with the ham and cheese or egg and, you know, the, the, the omelets or the pancakes or, uh-huh. but you know, I, the last five years now I've been real consistent with my oatmeal and everybody gets a kick out of that. But I'll tell you what, I eat it plain. I do put some walnuts and, you know, fruit in it, but, uh, I eat a lot of it and it just, the energy that it brings to me every day and it's, it's healthy for you. So I don't add any sugar or nothing. My wife's like, how do you eat it? Plain. I'm like, well, I put mm-hmm. the berries and the walnuts in it, so it's it's good enough for me. How many? So you go to Starbucks and order. How many of them do you need to get from Starbucks to get enough? Well, only when I'm like on the road during a season at home. You know, we cook it at home, but on the road, I get four bowls. Four bowls. It comes with blueberry. I don't ask. <laughs> I don't ask for the sugar. I don't ask for the all the little ingredients that come with it. I have a stomachache listening to this. <laughs> but honestly, I mean. Because I, I can't eat before I run. So I get up in the morning, I get my run in, I get the water in me, and I have a coffee, and I go get my oatmeal, so I'm ready to eat. So that's how it works. Do you just have one bowl at a time, or you can bring like a giant Tupperware bowl with you to mix it all? On the ro- on the road, I just go one at a time. One right at, at a home. time. Yeah. One after another. Are you going to be, uh, Dino, are you going to be a lifer? Are we going to see you at Camelback Ranch, Dodger Stadium, like all the way until you're walking around with a cane? Um, you know, I always tell, told my wife this, I said, there's going to be a time, uh, when my boys are in high school or mm-hmm. college, you know, that might be, and she's like, no way, you're never going to take them off. <laughs> I'm like, I'm on my 33rd year. I love what I do. I enjoy it. I love being around the guys. You know, uh, I always, t- you know, I love throwing batting practice every day. That's the, that's the part where you get to really get in with the players and they know you're throwing to help them out, get their swing going. But, uh, I don't know. I don't think it's going to be when I'm on a cane or anything. If I, if I can't physically do my job on the field, then probably that's when it's going to come to an end. Your personality is contagious. Who in your family do you feel like you need to thank or say, you know, wow, I'm just like you, mom, dad, grandpa, who is it? It's my dad. You know, he was a jokester. He, uh, he passed away five years ago, but he, uh, he would walk into any store, any restaurant, sit there and he would talk to people and, you know, that's where I think uh, my brother and I and my mom, my mom's the same way, but my dad really uh, can connect with people. 
Um, he's always telling jokes and, you know, he was a policeman earlier when we were growing up in Barstow and then they owned an Italian restaurant. And then uh, the last 20 some years, he was the deputy coroner of the San Bernardino County. So uh, he had a great career and, but he would just connect with people. And I guess that's probably where I would get it. So I'd credit my dad. Is he the one that got you in love with baseball? Absolutely. He was a player himself. You know, he played baseball, football. Um, then, uh, he joined the Marines, uh, and then, uh, he just, he, he played ball. He was a fast pitch pitcher at the time. We, my brother and I would go watch him pitch. He pitched in tournaments, three, four, five, six games a day. I mean, he just, and we were around the game and we watched ball. We grew up as a Dodger fan, angel fan. We'd watch uh, them on TV. And I just, at a young age, I said, man, one day I want to be in that uniform. And that's how it all started. Before we finish, uh, is this the best team you've coached? Uh, yeah, we're really good. Uh, even last year's team. And I've been on some teams with the Angels that w- were pretty talented. But this team is really good. And our bullpen has got a lot of depth in it. Uh, our our offense is coming. It's starting to come. And, you know, everybody knows we're going to hit. And the way the guys go about their work in the clubhouse, the culture that the Dodgers and Dave Roberts is – tremendous the culture in the clubhouse and the players it's uh this is probably yeah the best uh the best two years in all my years that with talent and the way we go about our work is pretty good i think that's a good note to finish this on dino and uh on behalf of everybody around the dodgers we're really lucky to have you and, and glad that those last two years you're talking about have been for you back in dodger blue thank you thank you so much for having me on thanks all right dino thanks pal thanks, Dino. okay Joining us live from Seattle, I guess it won't be live when people listen to this, but joining us from Seattle, Dave Roberts, manager of the Dodgers. Dave, what was the best thing you saw this week? The best thing I saw, and I would be hard-pressed to uh, see you guys come up with something better, Seager versus Seager at Dodger Stadium. And um, I certainly like the Dodger win. It was good for theater, for Kyle to do something too, but I wasn't happy for our pitcher, Ross. Um, but it was still great for fans and certainly their family. How cool is it to see them give each other a hard time rounding the bases to those smirks they each had? See, you know what? D, I couldn't see it from where I was at. Okay. I don't know if it's my vantage point or my eyesight or what, but I heard that later, which is really cool. How about you, Oral? I've got to go with a major league first at bat, Kbert Ruiz's home yeah. run. That was really special. I loved how the guys uh, reacted on the bench. I love that somebody, it might have been A.J. Pollock, said to him, baseball's easy, huh? <laughs> yeah, he so, did say that. That's so that, fun. that was a lot of fun to watch and such a special moment. I'm going to go with another catcher. How about just the week in general for Austin Barnes? It's been awesome seeing a guy who grinds away at it so much and is really hard on himself experience some success like this. It's great, and, and I think that it's one of those things where He's always been an offensive player. He's always hit throughout the minor leagues, and the last couple of years really have been below average uh, for his standards and all of us. Um, and so you kind of get to a point as a player, like, man, where did it go? I know I have it in there. And then so for now to have conversations with Mookie and kind of untap and hear something different or worded differently has been powerful. And also, guys, I'll give credit to uh, Robert and uh, Brandt, the hitting guys, just in Aaron Bates, just to kind of understand that another voice isn't always a bad thing and just let's all work together and um, it's all about making the player better and that's what's happened 
and true story that Mookie's been part of that basically coaching staff too for Barnes? Yeah, it, uh, yeah, exactly. That's kind of what he signed up for in his deal to be part-time hitting <laughs> coach as well. Um, but no, they've been working together and um, it's, it's been really good. It's fantastic to see, you know, because the catching department was kind of the weakest link, not as far as the pitch calling and managing the pitching staff, but as far as the offense. So to see Will Smith was not getting his expected value out of his exit velocity. So we knew that bat was going to come along, but everybody was always pulling for Austin. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing is that if you look at our roster and what we know Austin was in there and then um, what Will has done, certainly a short sample here at the big league level, you just we just felt that the net uh, defense offense should be one of the elite combos in all of baseball. And that's kind of where I think it's going to uh, end. We need to figure out uh, something really great to wish for at the end of the interview this week because we finished off last week saying, hopefully when we talk next week, we'll have some runs to talk about. And you've scored like eight runs a game since. Just finally this last week, it seems like the offense is starting to click the way we had all kind of envisioned. It is. It is. And uh, we, we ran into a good one yesterday, a real good pitching duel, uh, Tony Gonsolin mm-hmm. and Marco Gonzalez. But I think outside of that, we have been taking better bats. And I'll tell you, and a lot of the talk in Los Angeles and Southern California is that heat. So when it gets hot, that ball certainly does fly. So there are balls now that, that guys hit earlier in the year or I guess earlier in the season, which yeah. wasn't much, which wasn't long ago, uh, that weren't going out of the ballpark that are now going out of the ballpark too. You know, when you look at the pitching staff, Doc, the bullpen has just been off the charts. You know, they're all pitching up to their relative potential individually. And then as a group, it just becomes ridiculous. But the starters haven't really reached that potential yet. But you've been able to cover them with the great offense. And they've been able to give you at least a three or four solid innings. But you're not getting all the sixes and sevens you might want. Are we getting the point in them getting in shape and getting a point in the season where we can start to expect them to start bringing it together potentially? Well, I, I think that's the hope world, um, but I'll say this is, um, yeah, we've been around, I think, four times with each starter outside of obviously Gonsolin, who we just uh, optioned back down after a great performance, and he'll be back. Um, but I think for me, that's the goal for these guys to go six innings every time out. Um, we are fortunate, or longer, um, but we are fortunate now that we have two extra relievers, essentially, so when somebody does get into trouble and you know, when you're getting into 90 pitches uh, through four plus innings, for me, that's just a lot. And in baseball, historically, and especially this year, it's kind of uh, 10x of injuries in the first month with pitching. And so for us to kind of continue to give these guys a softer landing so we can get through that first 30 days of baseball to get these guys strong through October, that's kind of the goal for all of us. I know Dodger fans are losing their minds a little bit seeing Tony Gonsolin sent back to the alternate site. What was that conversation like? It was a hard one. And I think that full disclosure, we had 17 days and we wanted to pencil Tony in to number one, get him starts here because he's earned them from last year. And number two is to give our guys an extra day of rest, the starters. So now to go six starters. And we made the commitment as an organization that how if he pitches well, doesn't pitch well, we're going to do that and trust what we're doing. And it turns out, which is great for all of us, that he didn't give up a run. Um, but the point being is that we wanted him to make a couple starts, get him back down there. Get We have an off day coming up to get our starters back online. And then, yeah, to think that Tony um, is a, going to be a part of the uh, 
uh, October playoff rotation, that's certainly very uh, feasible, and we can see that. Um, we'll get him back up here, but he's done everything in his power. You know, you've talked about in past podcasts and with the other media that um, great relationship with Kenley Jansen. And isn't it fun to watch him grow as a person and as a pitcher now? I mean, he's throwing his slider with high leverage situations, back you know, back to back or three pitches out of four. He's and he's using his cutter and he's using his ninety-three mile an hour two seamer. Also, it's got to be fun for you to watch. It's great, and it's we talked a little bit about Austin Barnes and maybe not to that degree certainly, but you know, there's a point last year and you know the last couple of years you could say that Kenley was saying, man. What, what am I now? You know, do I need to redefine myself and is it still in there? And Kenley's worked really hard to kind of listen to the coaches and, and biomechanics and people that we have and also worked hard himself in the weight room and kept keeping his weight where it needs to be. And for him to get that cutter back to where it's supposed to be, the command. And like you said, Earl, that slider that he punched, he went slider to Seeger or uh, cutter two-seamer and then uh, backdoor slider to Kyle Seeger to punch him. And so to have the confidence in that other pitch is huge. But also, man, that cutter playing up the way it is, it's really good. And I'm so happy for Kenley. How about this uh, quirky schedule and what you're going through this week with two in L.A. and then you both fly to Seattle? I guess you just kind of chalk it up to it's 2020 and you, you got to do whatever you got to do. But, I mean, do you even, like, unpack your bag when you get to the hotel in this situation? I will say this: there's a couple coaches that uh, packed very light. They had carry-ons because we're only there for two days yeah. and left their bags on the plane. So they had to go shopping uh, <laughs> for clothes today. <laughs> so, oh, no. Uh, it's something that we're not used to. But I'll say this is players, like most people, have a tendency to complain about things that we probably shouldn't complain about. But the now the way that life is, things mm-hmm. don't make sense. Now it's just so great to see our guys just kind of – Look at the schedule. Look at the itinerary. Yeah, we play the Seattle Mariners at home. Then we go up there for two. Then we come home. And it's like, it is what it is. And we're here. We're still lucky to play baseball. And to be honest with you, that's the way we should all look at things. And, and I'm, I'm happy for our guys. Did you have to have Major League Security with you on the plane because the umpires were flying with you? So, uh, <laughs> fortunately, I didn't get tossed out or there was no... Uh, too much banter going back and forth with these guys. So they did sit in the back a few seats. Uh, There didn't need to be security. Uh, We didn't need to keep like JT or anybody away from Max uh, Muncy or JT didn't want to go back and go over the strike zone with them. No, because once the players get to see the video right on the plane, they get their video. Finally, they get away uh, from the locker room. They can I'm get sure the they might have been tempted. But <laughs> Did no, they want to take their like laptop back to them in front of them and just put it awesome. in their face and go like, see this that, one? That wouldn't have been ideal. That would not have been <laughs> ideal, especially <laughs> that we got them for two more games. So yeah, no. right, right. Uh, we had Dino Ebel as our guest this week just a little bit ago, Dave. What's it like having Dino around? I'll tell you, it, it's it's great. You know, uh, Dino is he's a baseball rat. He's uh, I give him a hard time because he's so regimented with his workouts and his eating. Um, But on the baseball side, um, he is just so in tune with everything. And he got to work with one of the best in the game, you know, Mike Socia. And so it's really fun to see Dino. And I know I talk about all the time is continuing to evolve. This guy has just jumped in with both feet with analytics and positioning and him and our baseball ops guys. I mean, there's a reason, you know, he's a big reason why we, we convert balls and play in, in the outs. And 
Um, we have good defenders, but Dino is just on top of everything. And, and at third base, like I've heard of a couple things of games you guys have had him mic'd up or the Dodgers have had him mic'd up. And just his insight, and I'm just so happy fans can see the dialogue that he has and the way he kind of thinks through game through a game. And um, I just don't think there's anyone better. You know, the game has changed, Dave, so much from when you started playing, when I was playing, and, and the culture continues to change. Did you hear much or see the controversy about Tatis swinging 3-0 with a big lead? I did. I, I did. You know what's ironic is that three days prior, I think, we were playing, or four days prior, uh, we were playing the Padres, and we were beating them up pretty good. And there was a 3-0 situation. I think a man on first base late. Maybe I think it was bottom of the eighth inning. Mookie was up. He looked at me, should I swing or should I take? And I, I told him to take. Um, he took that pitch right down the middle. Next pitch, he hit for a homer. And so the way I was taught playing the game, there's certain, as we all talk about, unwritten rules. But I will say this. The more I think about this, and I've heard both sides, and there's always sort of gray and not black and white, I just think that I'm more of the mind guys to let our guys now play till the end. And because, to be quite honest, he doesn't swing 3-0. Uh, they come back and score five runs. We scored five runs twice two nights ago. And so now you're using a high-leverage uh, reliever. So just take it as no one's trying to embarrass anybody. We're trying to just play the best we can, and that's baseball. So I just think I got to take my own advice and, and continue to evolve because the game has changed. The one thing I've seen in the culture, which would be interesting to get your take, um, there seems to be a lot more contact around second base and home plate this year. You know, the Will Smith with the neck, a uh, lot of contact at second base, but it doesn't seem like guys are complaining and going right to the replay. Like, it just seems like a little bit of the contact's coming back in the game. Yeah, you know, I think that there's a little bit of, a little bit of give on that side of things where the commissioner, uh, commissioner's office and players union are understanding that you still got to play baseball there's still going to be contact as long as it's not kind of really intentional to like hurt somebody I think that's baseball um so they're cracking down on certainly intentionally throwing at guys certainly above the ways where you can end somebody's career which I I do I do get that um but you know, the thing of like letting guys play and I think baseball in general, it is about the fans. It's about the players, but there's a give and there's got to be an evolution because certainly you don't want Fernando Tatis or Cody Bellinger and shoot for, I lived it where I didn't let Mookie Betts swing three and oh, you player fans want to see these players perform. Um, so I'm kind of evolving as well. Top four this week, guys. We're going to do top four baseball nicknames. We figured we'd bounce around this time instead of each giving our uh, our full four. Um, and these are, I think Rick Krajewski, our producer, dictated that these are more modern versions, so I can't throw it back and do like Mysterious Walker like we talked about the other day. That's not in play in the 1910s. So top four baseball nicknames, modern day, and you can define modern day however you want. But Dave, we'll let you start with number four. Well, I, I think that First off, um, this was a fun one. So, Rick, this was really good. Uh, it just takes me back decades. Um, I won't go too deep. But number one, I think that we all got to just get this uh, off the table. It's the Bulldog. So it's like. Okay, non-Bulldog. Right. So it's like, I mean, this is not <laughs> even. A, this is not any bias. <laughs> maybe a little. But it's like, okay, let's have this conversation, this discussion. Bulldog is number one. 
Perfect. Okay. All right. <laughs> all right. So if we all agree with that, now yep. I can work back from four. Is that okay? Yes. Agreed. Skipper. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> What's your four? So number four, I'm going to go, hopefully it's not too back for Rick, but I'm going to go Ted, the splendid splinter Williams. I mean, mm. it's like, come on, one of the greatest hitters, if not the greatest hitter of all time, the old school unfinished bat, you got the natural and it's like, you see the perfect swing, Ted, the splendid splitter. Come on. Easy, easy one. Oral, what do you have for number four? Uh, I played for this gentleman. And it was true how long it took him to get in the box and get ready for every single pitch. The human rain delay, Mike Hargrove, he did the batting gloves a zillion times, the feet a zillion times. He'd get in there. He'd got to get his posture right. And I played for Mike Hargrove, so I had to get that one in there. I'm glad you didn't say Pedro Baez. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Uh, so I try to go a little more – off the beaten path, I guess. Make sure you guys wouldn't have what I have. My number four, the mayor of Ding Dong City, Travis Shaw. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Huh? He got the nickname. Yeah, he got the nickname while he was in Boston, and he wore it on the back on his back during Players Weekend. So I'm going to go with the mayor of Ding Dong City. What's your number three, Doc? <laughs> number three is the oil can Boyd. And it's oil can Boyd. And I just like that's when I I mean old Red Sox and pitcher and I just love the name oil can. I have no idea where it came from. <laughs> and I think it's something to do with him drinking beer. The beer was dark or something like that. He's from the south, but what a great nickname. Perfect. My number three is uh is a movie. Um The Wizard of Oz, Ozzy Smith. And out of total respect for what he did for the game, and he ended up at the beginning of his career, he was just a glove man, but he went into the weight room and he got stronger and he became an offensive threat. And it's just so much fun to watch him play shortstop. It, he actually was a wizard. He was ridiculously good. And what a Hall of Famer. Simplicity for me on number three, the big hurt, Frank Thomas, right? It's, it's simple, but it was perfect for him. What's your number two, Doc? Number two, I'm going to go with uh, the Kung Fu Panda, Pablo Sandoval. <laughs> it's just like when you go up there to at and and you see all these like panda things, it's hilarious. And he embraced it. It's, yeah. it's, and he just does look like a big panda bear. So um, that's a very current one, and, and I like that. Oh. Um, my number two we're on? Yeah. I'm, I'm going to go with the penguin, Ron Say. Nice. Uh, maybe should be in the Hall of Fame. Has the, a higher war than a lot of Hall of Famers. His war is 53.5. So he's ridiculous. 316 home runs, 1,000 walks. And Ron Say, just because of the body type, and he was a step and a dive and a great third baseman, hit in the clutch all the time, and somebody we see out at Dodger Stadium, and I still to this day call him Penguin. Another one for me that's extra simple but just perfect, the kid Ken Griffey Jr., yeah, good call. And number one for you, Doc? No, number one for me is the man of steel, Ricky Henderson. So, man, I remember having him, having that poster. When I was younger, posters were big, and I had that picture of him. I had the Jordan, I had the Bo Jackson, but man of steel, Ricky Henderson. 
Number one for me, total respect. Got to know him pretty well when I was a giant. Sorry, Dodger fans, but the say hey kid, Willie Mays. Awesome. Um, say hey, you know, kind of the way he started sentences a lot, or he said hey an awful lot. And uh, can you imagine all the people in the world that got to know him, but how would he remember everybody's name? So say hey kid is, uh, he, was, he was quite a guy. <laughs> hey. For me, I went with one that it became the dude's name, like we knew him by this name more than we did his actual name, Big Poppy. Isn't that his name? Right? <laughs> Wasn't he born Big Poppy? Meet my baby, Big Poppy. <laughs> hey, so I got, I got a funny story. So I don't know who sent this to me, but the Big Poppy story where they had a rose for uh, David Ortiz, uh, Big Poppy, uh, recently, and Dustin Pedroia was up there and so Dustin's on deck, and then the fans are yelling, Dustin, Dustin. And then David looks at him and goes, hey, man, do you hear what they're calling you? And then Dustin goes, what? He goes, Dustin. And he goes, yeah, that's my name. <laughs> and then David's like, huh? That's your name? He's like, David, we've been teammates for 10 years. I thought your name was Pee Wee. <laughs> that is awesome. Pee Wee, yeah. Oh, uh, so good. Well, uh, last time we, we left you off saying let's get some runs this week. Big series coming up this weekend with the Rockies. Let's uh, take care of business there and rehash that in a week. Yeah, it, it's going to be fun. Let's take care of business here in Seattle. Yep. yep. And uh, then we'll be ready for a fun uh cardboard-filled hot day at Dodger Stadium versus the Rockies. <laughs> Can't wait, Doc. Thank you as always, buddy. All right, Thanks, guys. Skipper. Mailbag this week uh, comes from Steve. Steve wants to know what you think about the Dodgers at the trade deadline, which is such a layered thing this year. It's going to come up August 31st. Do you see them making any moves? And if so, what do you think they try to address? Well, I don't think there is much to address. So there, there's two things that come to mind. Um, first and foremost is let's see what our health is going into the trade deadline. Do the pieces we have now, are they healthy and going to be able to contribute after the trade deadline? And then the other thing I think about is just I only think they make a move if they can get just some unbelievable horse for the starting rotation. Okay. Or one more bat. For some reason, they think they need one more bat. But I really think the only place they'll go is a horse that's a pitcher. There are so many different interesting wrinkles to it this year. You get the player for 50% of the season as opposed to about 30% of the season in a traditional player. That said, you don't know for sure the season's going to get completed. We don't know if the virus pops back up and shuts it all down. So you factor all those things in when you decide how much risk to take. And then when you're talking about prospects, there is no data on these prospects this year. So you're trading for guys who the last time you saw them play and gathered any kind of information on them, it was 2019. So that's a, that's a lot of tough things. I think in general, it's going to be a very, very quiet deadline. And you combine that with the idea that the Dodgers look pretty uh, pretty seamless right now, not too many flaws there. I think you nailed it with the health thing, but right now I just don't see a whole lot happening. Yeah, and the question was specific about the Dodgers, but yeah. if, if if it's all of baseball, it could be slow just because there's so many teams that are going to have a chance. I agree with you. I agree. What are you most looking forward to in this week ahead, buddy? 
Well, we are getting to babysit your kids on Saturday morning, so you and Libby can go to breakfast. So we're looking yeah. see, forward to seeing Charlotte and Blake. But the other thing that was on my list uh, is the off day coming up on the 24th. Dana decided to stay with me here in Pasadena, so I'm going to get a nice day with my wife on the off day and probably find a place to have a little outdoor dinner. So we're looking forward to that. Awesome. How you about know, you? I was going to go to the off day, too, and say that. Good. I feel bad doing that because I remember... As a kid growing up, I hated off days, you know, watching and following. I was a Cubs fan. I think people know I I would hate it when the Cubs were off. And so yeah. I would never want to hear my broadcasters say they're looking forward <laughs> to an off day. What's wrong with you? But no, I you know, this stretch here, 17 games in a row for the Dodgers. And with the national stuff I do, too, it's been more than that. So a day of uh, family without much work. And I think we're going to take the kids to get ice cream at 21 Choices in Pasadena. And just enjoy yeah, a, a full day off. In season baseball is is a grind. It's yeah. a job we love, but for the players, for everybody in the industry, everybody's out, you know, going to Balboa Island or going to have a picnic with their family or, you know, Fourth of July fireworks. But we're the ones really entertaining and, and baseball is our season. That's our really our grind and those off days are precious to us. And I know everybody wants to still hear us on the air, but let us have a breather. <laughs> yeah, just one day. We'll be back on Tuesday. I'll see you at the park in a bit, buddy. Love you. All right, love you too.